Hey, everybody. This is Scott Lease back with you for the Surf and Sales podcast. We're doing things a little bit different this time. Richard is out traipsing about globetrotting around the world. So I'm doing this episode solo here with a special guest, Paige Robinson. Paige is the founder of Will Reed and is based in Dallas, Texas, fellow Texan. Welcome, Paige. Looking forward to talking with you today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and thank you for the uh, AirPods that I'm using right now. I appreciate that. It was a cool gesture a while back. Basically, I have to bribe Scott to do things, but I know how to get him. (laughs) That's right. It was very motivating, actually. It worked quite well. So. You know, I you're active on, on, on LinkedIn, but not like super, super active. So you yeah. probably have a good number of people who, who know who you are. But for those who don't, tell us a little bit about, you know, your business and, and what y'all are uh, up to these days. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first. It's a 2020 goal for me to get a little bit more consistent on LinkedIn. So for listeners and for you, Scott, call me out if you see it. Yeah. Accountability uh, partner. Um, So I am the founder of Will Reed. Will Reed is a talent advisory that really focuses on partnering with high growth companies at two key inflection points. So we actually have been around for about four and a half years, um, but we found that where we can really add the most value to a company is typically when they're really building out their very first early sales hires. We typically do that in partnership you know, with VCs, um, or really when they have um, gotten to enough of an inflection point where they're really starting to build out a secondary hub outside of the Bay um, in a place like Austin, which I know Scott, yeah. you know, you're, you're representing today, or a place like Dallas or Phoenix or Denver. And that tends to be more, I would say, um, growth hiring. So looking at you know, numbers of account executives and SDRs as well. But those are kind of those two key inflection points that we come along some come alongside companies and help them. And, th- and that's a pretty big trend, you know, comes as no surprise to anybody, but, um, you know, more and more sales orgs in particular, um, you know, are, are relocating out of San Francisco or out of New York City because of the cost and going to some, you know, cheaper options like in Austin. And even now, Austin's maybe starting to get a little pricey. So, you know, you, you mentioned Dallas. What are some other, other, uh, you know, cities that you feel like are starting to kind of heat up that maybe are a little bit off the grid or not off the grid, but like less well-known? Yeah, I think um, I'll, I'll say this, that, you know, I think if you are listening to this and you're running a large inside sales organization in the Bay, we should talk. That's it's a very, very difficult thing to do. And um, you can see some pretty immediate return on investment by looking to um, at least expand outside of the Bay for both diversity as well as cost reasons. But um, I think in terms of like the actual cities, I think what's really interesting is that um, the way people think about cities really, really depends, in my opinion, on um, the company, the stage, their hiring growth plan, um, the types of customers they're selling to. But once you kind of look at all those things, there's any number of cities that could be a good fit. So you obviously have cities that I would say are more like enterprise focused, like Raleigh or even like a Houston. Mm -hmm. Um, Houston made a really big effort to court um, 
you know, cities that would be selling and want to sell into kind of that, that global 1000 since they have so many there locally. Um, you also have cities that I think are more known for inside sales, which, you know, I would say like Denver and Austin kind of compete a little bit for that crown, but some up, up and comers that I've been really excited about are also, you know, Provo, Salt Lake city, um, you know, Phoenix, Scottsdale area, I think is making yeah. a huge effort to attract those kinds of um, startups. And there's, I mean, that's just barely scratching the surface. Yeah. We, the you know, there's, there's a lot of conversation and chatter about, um, you know, how candidates can stand out in this kind of, you know, crowded market and all this stuff. Significantly less conversation, I think, and you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, significantly less conversation about how employers can stand out, right? Um, you know, it, it, there's so many startups and tech companies and seemingly so much opportunity in some of these cities that, that you know, you just mentioned. What are some of the things that, that you're finding that employers are doing that are working really well to help them stand out o over their, you know, competitors in a, in a limited talent market? Yeah, I think it's a great, great question and, and very much, I think, ties to this trend that we're seeing where even cities that, you know, you may have been the one big gig in town, there's five others behind you that are coming or maybe you've already come <laughs> because yeah. maybe sexy product, um, product sales teams outside the Bay and outside of New York. Uh, a couple of things I would say is that one, from a state of mind perspective, I think it's really important for companies and employers to almost view themselves like they're selling a product. So in the same way that- a sales Like their culture is a product. Yeah, their culture, their product, their team, like everything is, is part of a broader sale. Um, I think they need to view it in a lot of respects that way. So just like you would a customer and you would do a lot of research on the front end to make sure you're reaching out to customers that actually like fit you know what your the product you're selling and then you kind of bring them through um, different stages I think it's important to think about your interview process the same way and a candidate should as well a candidate that's going out for a sales role should treat it like a sales process but I would argue that the company and employer should do the same so I think one doing a little bit more work on the front end to really have a good understanding of what your ideal candidate profile is so that when you do outbound outreach, you're focusing on candidates that um, you know, really would be a good fit for your company and that this would be compelling to them as well. And then I think having a really thoughtful, um, well-planned interview process where the candidate from the very get-go kind of knows what they're signing up for. And I think viewing it as a selling, kind of a joint selling process through every step, I think is really, really key. Um, is there a particular part in the recruiting funnel, recruiting process, like that, that companies, you know, kind of misfire or screw up more often than, than not? Like what, what is, you know, if you're, let's say somebody out there, is, you know, is a hiring manager or running like a whole department, like what is, what is the stage that you consistently find or get feedback from, from, you know, candidates that, Hey, this company dropped the ball here, right? Where, where should people focus maybe and make sure they're really nailing? I would say, I would say kind of in two areas. Um, the first one is when I kind of get back to the ideal candidate profile, I think that a really common thing, I actually particularly see it probably most in Austin is that I think companies really, really would love, for candidates that have been a sales development rep at another tech company for a year to come back and be an SDR again at their company for another year. And so they'll kind of build out their ideal candidate profile, but they haven't really thought about if that's compelling to the candidate. Yeah, yeah. Do you hear that, Austin? 
wake up. <laughs> There's just a lot of friction there. And I think you have to think about if, if what you're candidly selling on the market is going to appeal to that target audience. And so I think even if you can scope your role where they're getting some closing experience and you're really thinking about training and enablement that's going to help take that SDR actually to a really solid account executive, then now you actually are, you know, in some respects committing talent arbitrage because your competitors aren't doing that and you have something yeah. that's compelling to the market. So I think that's the first thing that people go wrong on is like to some, to some um, extent thinking about if what they're offering in the job market is actually compelling. Like you don't want to, you don't want to treasure hunt for SDRs. Like you want to have a, an offering that's compelling enough where people are going to jump at it and enter your interview process. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is really around interview logistics. So in this market, candidates need to hear back on next steps no later than 48 hours. 48 hours. Say that one more time for the, for the audience because I have been banging this drum forever and recently talked to one of my clients about this and said, you're, you're blowing this. These people were trying to find a head of sales. And the process was taking weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm like, everybody's done now, you know, so repeat that, repeat that, repeat that time box. How much time do you have? Candidates have to have a next step, either yes or no, within 48 hours of their interview to be competitive. And I would say if you can do it within 24, you're better. You're better than, you're better than your competition. If you're not doing it within 48 hours, there's a really good chance that you will lose a top candidate and you'll have to look in the mirror <laughs> for that one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, that's not like the, the nice way to say it, but I, it's true. Like, I mean, it's just a really, really competitive market for top talent. And so I think, again, it goes back to having a really well thought out interview process, have a good point person or a recruiting agency running point on logistics. Yeah. And that candidate should never not know what's happening next. And also, yeah. they get, I mean, if they're not a good fit, free that person. Yeah, either, either way, yes or no, either way. Get back to them quick. Right. And allow them to run a better search because they now know what other options are on the table and that your company is not. That's a courteous yeah. thing to do. Just like we as salespeople like to be told no in some ways, like versus yeah. long for six months, candidates feel the same yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's take a step back for a second. I don't know this story, so I'm excited to ask you this question. Um, how did you get started in in sales? What was like your first sales job? Ooh, um, I know. I feel like this is such a common like salesperson answer. Scott, I've been selling for a long time. <laughs> you can ask. Well, that, that's interesting because that's not my and my answer at all. Oh, you know, I think you like saw back like in your child. My parents feel like they've been being sold to for their entire lives. Like they just kept fair enough. channel this and stuff. Yeah, I definitely feel like my kids are trying to close me every single day. Oh, I know. I beat them up six, and now I'm a parent. I'm a mom of two, and I'm pregnant with my third. And I'm like, I am seeing it already. I am paying for my raising. But yeah, I've always, you know, no meant try harder <laughs> from a very early age. Meant like, okay, but but is it really no? Have we thought about this? And I think, you know, in a lot of those kind of early experiences, it was thinking about like, I think my mind naturally went to how do you expand the pie? So if someone says no, it's like, well, what if we expanded the options? Does that make it different? Yeah. What if we thought about, you know, adding this? Yeah, sweeten the deal a little bit. Yeah. 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 Look at it differently. So anyway, probably my first sales job was really on my parents. But my, um, 
my first, you know, formal job out of college was, I mean, it was with a really wonderful firm um, called Alvarez and Marsal um, in management consulting. And I, you know, in that, and that you don't really sell, like you don't get to sell until you're like late thirties, you know, Mm. early thirties. So I remember I was talking to my CEO and I kind of cringe thinking about this conversation, but it was like maybe my third or fourth month, most, most millennial conversation I've ever had probably. (laughs) (laughs) working for me so once again I'm kind of paying for it myself but I remember talking to me like so when do I when do I get to sell stuff like when do I get to like sell companies <laughs> just, How, so this is right out of college so you were like 22 years old something like uh, that yeah like yeah. so wet behind the ears that's wild so that says that you wouldn't have got to sell till you were in your late 30s or early 40s so I'm yeah. I'm 42 years old I'm 42 years old so I would have just made the cut to start selling well <laughs> He would he would push back on that. Typically, with consulting, though, you're you're you have to really really become a practitioner um, for a long time and move up, you know, several steps. Yeah. Because yeah. the expectation of selling is on you. So yeah. he, would, yeah. he would object to this characterization, but but typically in, in those kinds of fields. So anyway, when I started my business, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed and have enjoyed the selling process. Quite a bit. What what's what's been the um, most surprising part of the entrepreneurial journey for you so far? Um, it was a lot. It's been a lot harder than I thought, which I think. And that and and that's that's been surprising to you. The the difficulty yeah. of it. Yeah. I think so. I think, but I think that's not a bad thing because I think if you really knew how hard sometimes things were whether it be parenting or marriage or friendship or, I mean, any of the best things in life, if you really knew how hard it was, yeah, right. you might not ever start. So a little might bit not of, ever do it. Yeah. yeah a little bit of um, ignorant optimism is not, not the worst thing in the world. Um, ignorant optimism. That's a great quote that people should lift. Ignorant optimism. <laughs> yeah. So I, don't, I don't think that that's a bad, a bad thing. It's definitely been, um, arguably one of the best crucibles for my character. Like I think I have yeah. grown matured as a person far more for me personally than many other things could have, could have done just because I think it's the combination of you're learning about your, you're flying and building the plane, so to speak of your own personhood while also mm-hmm. building something for other people. And so yeah. bigger, how long did, how long did it, how long were you, on your own before you, you know, had employees and started hiring folks? Not, not very long, honestly. I've had, I've had a team and that's part of, you know, like, I think what I really care about. So I think there's a lot of different ways to do the business I'm in. Um, I really care, like for me, like what's really um, fun is getting to develop and build out a team. Yeah. Um, And so that's been a, pretty big part of my story and we'll read as a whole. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you have, do you have, do you have any, you know, good mentors and people that you've been able to bounce ideas off of and kind of, you know, give you guidance in your, in your peer group for what you've, what you've been doing? Yeah. Um, I actually look up to quite a few of my customers. Like they didn't, they didn't know. I mean, some of my early, I mean, I, mm-hmm. he knows this cause I've told him this now, but, you know, Sean Andrew, who's, you know, SVP of 
worldwide sales at MongoDB was one of my very first customers. And he didn't, I mean, he probably knew, but he was basically teaching me about sales while I was also looking for his <laughs> sales manager hire. Like I was kind of a, like, hmm, like we're kind of, kind of like taking notes as he's talking about stuff. You know, I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> That's like, funny. Oh yeah, sure. You know, so I've actually learned a ton from my customers. Like I think just about, I'm fortunate that one, they're phenomenal sales practitioners. Like I would say some of the best in the game in terms of like sales leadership and developing teams. I would put you in that category as well. Like they leave behind. Like, so yeah. it worked for them now have their job, which I think is like yeah. one of the markers of, of, of a really good sales practitioner. Yeah. Uh, and then I would say one area that I'm personally trying to grow in is that I, if I have a kind of a, a gap in the mentorship arena, I would love to get a few more fellow moms that are trying to mm. build up companies. Cause I think, mm-hmm. which I know is a little cliche too, but I, I do feel like that's kind of, I, I do feel a little isolated in, in that journey. How do you, um, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And, and, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there, a lot of women out there who would like to hear about that and learn more and network and, and talk to other people who are, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're, you're pregnant right now. You're, you're literally running a company pregnant. I assume you're going to have to take some type of, you know, maternity leave for a period of time. How do you, how do you navigate all that? You know? So the, the, I'm not the only one out there. There's plenty of other, you know, I know that there sure, are. Sure, sure. But you're the one that I'm talking to right now. I know, I know but I think what's hard about it and why it's a little isolating is because you have no time. <laughs> so like these other people don't have time either. So I think, yeah. I think it's been even interesting to kind of communicate to, to different people is that like my, my in-office, like my, I had to become very compartmentalized, I think, which work used to kind of flow Across everything and yeah. now I really have to view myself as in multiple jobs and that those yeah. jobs require like complete intensity like while I'm yeah. in them um so like taking a two-hour lunch you know 30 minutes away when I'm not sure like what's going to come of it in the middle of the workday is like really hard for me now whereas like I think before yeah. I'd be yeah like let's just meet and see where it goes now for me like I don't have that much intensity time at work because my other job starts when I get home. Right. Right. I'm at my, my, my kids are now 10 and 12 years old, two boys. And they just flat out call me on shit. They're like, dad, put your phone, put your phone down. Stop working. Yeah. I'm like, damn it. I was trying to sneak something past you. You Yeah. They're not like, they're not, they're not having it. Whereas, you know, when they were younger, you know, I I could kind of, sneak some yeah, things in right right you know like you know yeah. good shot son <laughs> right like yeah. now I, I can't get away with that now so i i have i've i've had to do the same thing and i've i find that as my kids get older my level of efficiency has to get better and better and better you know not i don't mean it so much even as like time management it's just like what i do with the next 30 minutes needs to be about triple triple productive at what it used to be able to be 10 years ago you know like i i move fucking fast right you give me 30 minutes i'm gonna get a lot of stuff done right and and i think that i think probably most parents you know can relate to that yeah 
dads and moms, I feel like my husband this past weekend took my kids to the park for 45 minutes. And like in those 45 minutes, I like shot off 10 emails, cleaned my whole house, packed for our offsite, like came home, yeah. was like, had, had like dinner going, <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah. minutes, no kids, like we're, we're going to get it done. But, but yeah, it, it's a, honestly, it's a, it's a, it is a sweet privilege to like, I think about that all the time and not to make this like overly nostalgic or emotional, but I, I feel so fortunate to like live in the U S like in the U S and that I get to like that we live in a country where a, you can be an entrepreneur and b that you can be an entrepreneur and a woman. And, um, I just and still have, and still have a, you know, balanced family life and spend time with your yeah. kids and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just pinch myself. Sometimes I just have to pinch myself and just say, "I can't believe I get to do this." Cannot believe I yeah. get this. It's so cool. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I'm very new to this entrepreneurial solopreneur thing. I'm only in my, I've been at it three and a half months now. And somebody asked me earlier today. Actually, I was talking to an old friend from from uh, from high school, and he asked me like, you know, what's how's it going? What's what's it what's it like? And I said. I, I don't even feel like I'm working. Like it, I'm working nonstop, but like it doesn't feel the same as was when I was working for other people and when I had to go into an office, right? Like I'm doing so many different things, and but the days, dis, the time disappears like that, and and it's just like so much. It's so much more fun. It feels so much more meaningful. It it, it it's a it's very very different, you know, than working yeah. for somebody else. So. Yeah, it's been it's been neat to yeah. neat to experience, and you've been on that journey for way longer than me. So. Yeah, no, I I think I think it's it's a it's a really special thing. I think there there are definitely times like that you'll probably feel at times where you honestly wish you kind of worked for the man, you know? Because I think like what you end up trading is um, I heard someone put it this way: you trade, you know, when you're working for somebody else, and especially like a bigger company, you trade like macro flexibility for micro flexibility. So like, you know, somebody can take a week off of work and like you can go and really no one's going to probably try to find you <laughs> and yeah. you want to just go off the grid or take some time off. Like you could do that. Um, but when you own your own company, like that's, you know, you, it's like you have a toddler at home that has access to fire. Like you don't know, <laughs> like you really can't, like take your eye off the ball for that long just because somebody, you know, you have to kind of, you know, the, the duty you have to your employees and your customers. But like, if you have a sick kid or you know what, there's this conference you really wanted to go to, or you want to take a lunch to go meet with somebody, like you get to do that. And I think sometimes working for, you know, I, I just think you have a lot more flexibility to kind of shape yeah. your, shape your schedule. Yeah. Experience. Let me, let me ask you a, uh, a tough question. At least I think it's a, a, a bit of a tough question. You know, there's, there's a lot of conversation around diversity or lack thereof in sales and, you know, the lack of women in, in sales leadership and how can we get more um, women in, in, in leadership and into sales and profession in general. Why, why do you think it is that, to me at least, the, the recruiting space is 80 to 90 percent female? That's my observation, right? Why, why do you think women have gravitated more towards the recruiting side or, or do you disagree with me? I don't know the statistic on that. So I, I don't I, either. I'm just yeah, pitfalling based on my observation. Anecdotally, I don't, I don't disagree with you. I think you know, obviously tech sales 
I mean, I do have the statistics on that and women are underrepresented in that industry. Yeah. So we've got a third, less than a third of all of the software industry. And then when you get to the leader level, only 18% of women are in sales leadership roles within tech. So that's kind of based on LinkedIn data, um, which I feel like is probably pretty accurate for our, for our industry. Eight, 18%. We, we, we need to work on that and make it make a huge, huge dent in that. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm finding this, you know, so my, my team is uh, made up of a lot of really talented, bright young women. Like I have a lot of women that work, work on my team. And I think it's, I don't necessarily know what, why women will gravitate more towards recruiting versus sales. For me personally, I didn't even know about tech sales. Who knows? I might have been working for you if I'd known about it. <laughs> might have, you know, I might have been one of your Austin companies at one point. I just didn't even know about it. So I think there's definitely like an education gap, which you know my company is trying to solve with some. Um, we have an internship like dedicated to that around education for college women about this industry. Um, so I, I, again, I don't have like hard data on that other yeah. than my experience as well as the experience around. Well, me. I mean, you meant you mentioned sales and education i mean there was not when i was going to school I, I i graduated college in 1999 um there was no such thing as a sales course offered oh, anywhere awesome. yeah if it as any part of the business you know program and you know it's still not really represented or recognized in this credible kind of way but there are schools you have one right there ut dallas and um I think yeah. his name is Howard Dover has got a really good program going on. Houston has one. I think he's, yeah. he's maybe getting one, but A&M has one. Baylor has one now. So it's, it's happening, but it's, it's, it's within the last like three to five years for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, broadly, broad brushstrokes though, women in the workforce, women in tech sales. Um, I think there's an education gap. I think it's particularly with how sophisticated tech sales has become in terms of like the products on the market. I think it's very hard if you miss the on-ramp to get on later because I think everybody wants you to have had that SDR experience, which I think is such a valuable foundation for all yeah. roles. So if you kind of miss the on-ramp, I think education is a big part of it. Um, I think what I see at least later on at the enterprise and sales leadership level is that it can feel very incompatible with being the primary parent. And what I mean by that is like, and I, I, you know, this is true of my household, but I personally wouldn't want it in any other way. And I have a very, very collaborative supportive husband who cooks and cleans and, you know, we have a very like, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 Like equal relationship, but like, you know, if there's a doctor's appointment, like I still, you know, I still kind of take on, you know, there's, there's, a, there's quite a few things I still do and like to do, like by, by choice, mm -hmm. that I really, you know, kind of, I think, feel part of being a mom to me. And I think what's hard is those can feel at odds with the way that sales is often set up, right? So like, for example, yeah. enterprise roles, like, so if you make it to the enterprise level, oftentimes they still want you to come into the office you know, travel. Three to, yeah, three to four days a week, even when you're not traveling, like come into the office and depending on what location you're in, if you're in the Bay, you know, I had a yeah. customer who really wanted this, but in the Bay, like you could live two hours away. So if you can yeah. come into the office, you're not going to see your kids. Like you're not going to yeah. get to 
Austin or anything. Yeah, so, but before before I moved to Austin, I was living in in Santa Rosa, which is 65 miles north of San Francisco. Yeah. And on you a know, good day, it was an hour and a half, and on a bad day, it was two and a half hours each direction. Yeah, yeah so you know, you know it, you know it well. Like you miss never you again. Know, yeah, lot with that, and so I think there's room. There's room, I think, for moms and dads. Like I think it's good for both to have maybe some more flexibility within yeah. to help accommodating to help accommodate. Well, I think I think there's a little bit of a a little bit of a movement, you know, now for better work-life integration, work-life balance, uh, much more, you know, remote, remote selling, remote roles and things like that. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully companies start to get more and more on board with that type of thing. Because, you know, again, as, as we started the show off by talking about how employers can stand out, well, newsflash, this is one particular way you can stand out, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, think about, I think a big part of that is the customers, like how to come along but I, I know for me, like I've, I've met a lot of my customers, but there's some customers I still have never, I mean, you and I, I don't think you, oh yes, we have, we have actually met in person, but there's a lot of customers I have not met or really like kind of key, like mentors or friends in my industry that yeah. we have a relationship like this, right? Like where you really feel like you know the person and feel connected to them, but it's over, over Zoom. And so I think it's, it's been good because I think customers are starting to come around to it as well, where they may feel comfortable making a purchase. Right a big decision yeah. without having to, without having to shake a hand and have, have a drink and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, this has been great. I know, I know we're pressed for time a little bit. Um, Richard usually likes to tee this part up, but since he's gallivanting around the universe right now, um, you know, we, we try to, we try to make ourselves available at the, at the end of our show as well. And, and say, you know, how can we help you? Is there anything, that you're working on that we can try to help you with or any questions that you might, you know, have for us that we could try to answer real quick before we get off. So I pose the, the question to you, you know, what can, what can, what can I do for you and, and, and Richard, even though he's not here? Well, I, you know, a question I get a lot and I'm sure you probably, I need to go back and look, but I'm sure you have an, a podcast expert and if not already it's coming, but I get a lot of questions about equity from my customers. Oh and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, can yeah. I, it, like at a high level, as a candidate and as an early stage company, what are some principles to keep in mind? Oh man, <clears throat> so this sneak preview. Um, one of the things that I have been quite frustrated with is the selling of the massive dream and the promise of any amount of equity is going to make you a millionaire. Um, and I've been decently outspoken about it and I've seen I've seen a few posts. Yeah, I, I I don't want to call out my peer group too too much, but you know I wish there was more people other than me talking about it. And there's one individual in particular who has stepped up, and that's Colin Cadmus, um, based in in New York City. And so he's he's actually going to be on the show later this month, and we're going to probably spend the majority of the the conversation talking about it. But um, to go back, you know, first of all, it depends on on your role, right? Um, you know, if you are like the first sales employee or just, you know, sales employee number 50 or something like that, I, I think the most important thing that you should, you should know is it is almost impossible that you are going to make life-changing money on your equity, okay? Uh, we were talking to Rock Versace, who was telling us the story about 
um, you know, this time that Mark Benioff at Salesforce gave 10,000 shares to a friend of his um, who had just referred a bunch of people in as like a thank you, right? So we're talking about salesforce.com, one of the largest companies, most successful companies on the planet, right? Right. That share that share price today is one hundred and seventy five dollars a share, so that's one point seven five million, right? So that's ten thousand shares at one of the most successful companies ever that's out there right now, right? So if you're getting five hundred shares, right, instead of ten thousand, you do the math. Like, do you think that the company you're at is going to get to a stock price? of 175 bucks or higher someday, right? So the expectations are so out of whack, so out of whack, and, and, and that's a problem. And, and, you know, to me, like, that is, a, uh, that is an industry problem. That's an industry problem. No one has taken the time and energy to educate folks on, on what the equity really means. No one does the math with them to set realistic expectations of what they might earn at some point in time. This is true for, for the vice president level as well. That, you know, I, I was talking to somebody who is a VP of sales. This is a month ago, maybe. And uh, they were telling me, you know, how many shares they had. And I was shocked by how little it is. And when I told them, you know, my historical numbers at, at different organizations, they said their mind was like blown. And, you know, they immediately, I think, viewed their current situation very, very differently as they started doing the, the math. So, you know, I hope that's, I, I, this is not to say that equity is not meaningful at all, because it is. I've had two exits now, um, certainly hoping for two more. Um, but, you know, unless you are a senior executive and have significant chunks um, you're not going to make life-changing money. You might be able to make enough money to, you know, buy a new car or go on a really nice trip, or maybe if you're really lucky, you know, put a down payment on a house, but nothing that's going to foundationally and fundamentally change the game for your family. Right. And, and I, and I just wish people were honest about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the hot take and I can't wait to yeah. listen and hear the, the full debrief here in the next yeah. month. I hope I hope Colin's listening because uh, there's a big demand for this. So, uh -huh. well, thank thanks you. for thanks for yeah, thanks for the time today, Paige. It's always good to see you and talk to you, and, and really appreciate uh, everything that you're doing. Well, awesome. Right. We'll talk soon. Thank you guys. Right, talk soon. Bye bye. Bye bye.